The United Nations has warned the war in Ukraine could cause global food shortages for tens of millions of people. The Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, said the conflict could lead to poor nations facing famine for many years. That's if Ukraine's exports, which include vast amounts of sunflower oil and wheat, are not restored to pre-war levels. When we started this miniseries over three months ago, the war was in a very different phase. Russian infantry had only just withdrawn from Kiev, Chernihiv, and immediately around Kharkiv. Mariupol was still resisting, and the creeping destruction in the Donetsk hadn't yet begun. In fact, the war had only been fought for over a month. And in our second episode, we looked at the global food crisis that might unfold and the possible implications of the cost of living crisis. The episode at the time seemed the most globally important, and just three months later, we're already beginning to feel the impact. So in this episode, we'll be revisiting it and looking to see whether this massive issue has developed the way we predicted and whether there is any hope it can be resolved. This is Undercurrents, War in Ukraine, a special edition of Chatham House's podcast, and I'm Ned Sedgwick. In this episode, we'll be speaking to two experts on the food crisis, Laura Wellesley and Marianne Petzinger. The original food supply episode we recorded was the one that I found the most depressing and the most worrying. In this interview, I'll be desperately trying to find some kind of hope that the situation is being taken seriously and can potentially be resolved. I'm Laura Wellesley. I'm a senior research fellow in the Environment and Society programme at Chatham House. Hi, I'm Marianne Petzinger. I'm a Senior Research Fellow in the Global Economy and Finance Programme at Chatham House. I'd like to ask both of you, is it clear that Russia is weaponizing the global food supply and Ukraine's place within it? I'll start by asking you that question, Marianne. Well, I think it certainly is because we're seeing Russia blocking 20 million tons of grain in Ukraine and storage facilities. So I think that really is the, the key indicator. But then on, on top of that, we've also seen Russia introducing export restrictions, for example, of of wheat and fertilizer and other countries are then um, taking additional steps. So that's kind of compounding crises on on compounding crises. But I would say, yes, there's clear evidence. Would you agree, Laura? Yes, I would. I mean, it's it's very obvious that Russia is aware of the impact that the blockade, for example, on on Ukrainian exports is having in terms of setting the conditions for, you know, a catastrophic global food crisis and, you know, using that as leverage. You know, further reports of Russia stealing Ukrainian grain and exporting it as Russian, I think, you know, shows that it's not just for political gain, but also financial gain. And yeah, it's a really perverse situation. Laura, what would you say to Russia's claim that it's actually the onus is actually on Ukraine and they aren't doing enough to help clear the mines and clear the area for the grain supplies to leave Ukraine? I mean, Russia's the aggressor here. Russia's invaded illegally. Um, you know, Ukraine shut the ports at the time of the invasion, but uh, is clearly now now it's in harvest season. Is clearly wanting to export its grain not least because otherwise the you know the future of Ukraine's agricultural sector looks pretty dismal if uh, farmers aren't able to to gain the revenue they can from harvest this year they, they won't have the cash flow to, to plant for next season so it's a you know a strong imperative for Ukraine to be exporting in support of its 
economic recovery, um, it does seem that, you know, it will be for Ukraine and Russia to demine the waters. But it's very obvious as well that, you know, Russia really is is a threat to any trade in the region, that it is not viable to imagine that commercial vessels would feel able to trade in, in the Black Sea on assurances from Ukraine alone. It, it needs to be Russia that's recognising um, you know, Russian mines, Russian aggression, Russian threats to, to trade. Um, not, you know, not, that's not even mentioning the fact that Russia's clearly targeted Ukraine's port cities, Ukraine's coastline, um, you know, a number of major port cities are under siege. In 2014, it took the Crimean Peninsula and, and the ports there. Um, it's not just about Odessa. You know, the, the ports on the Sea of Azov have been out of action owing to Russian takeover and Russian control uh, since early in, in the conflict. So, yeah, I don't think there's any question that it's for Russia to, to take a step back and, and allow exports to flow. Why is Ukraine unable to export over land? It is, and it's that Ukraine's agricultural sector and export industry has been built on seaborne trade. It hasn't invested in its inland road, rail, waterway network to any great extent for grain exports because it hasn't had to. You know, as countries around the world have done, they focused on um, maritime trade for in, to access international markets. Um, and there are a number of logistical constraints. Um, for example, Ukraine's railways are Soviet-era railway gauges that don't match with the railway gauges of its European neighbours, meaning that any grain that arrives at the border by rail needs to be unloaded and reloaded onto rail cars that are compatible with European systems. Trucks just don't hold, you know, the volumes needed to, to move grain in any meaningful volumes. Um, the same is true really of barges along the Danube. There's just simply not the capacity there. But also, you know, um, any grain that comes out, particularly via Romania, will now be in competition with Romanian grain for export it's not a case that there's just a huge amount of spare capacity on the European system to absorb um, Ukrainian exports either. So, yeah, a lack of capacity, a lack, you know, a chronic lack of investment over the long term means that those overland transport networks just aren't ready, aren't capable to move grain in the volumes needed. Marianne, are, are there any countries that are actually benefiting? from the fact that Russia and Ukraine have been removed from the board. You know, surely that in terms of supply surely in terms of supply and demand, there will be some suppliers who will be matching that demand and benefiting from it. Well there is potential that some countries, particularly in Latin America, could pick up um, some of the, the export, but that very much depends on domestic reforms there. I think there's also broader questions, you know, not just on the impact of of food and fertilizers, even though that's, you know, a key aspect of it, there's also the dimension of, of fuel and energy more broadly. And I think for the global trading system, there is, you know, knock-on implications. The G7 members, for example, they have revoked normal trade relationship with Russia under the WTO, and that's led to a tariff increase on all of Russia's imports. Um, 
there's talks to expel Russia from the WTO. That hasn't happened yet. It's very unlikely to happen. But what a key group of WTO members have done is to effectively not engage with Russia and not engage with Russia on all kinds of small group negotiations. And that, again, has spillover effect into other negotiations that are now stalled at the World Trade Organization. There has been um, some movement with regards to food reached at the last ministerial conference just last month, where WTO members essentially agreed to restrain export restrictions and to completely exempt the World Food Program from such restrictions. So I think that's that's positive, but clearly much, much more needs to be done. WTO members have also taken steps in support of Ukraine. Again, that's primarily the DG7 members here. They have essentially, um, you know, free trade agreements with Ukraine, the EU and the UK in particular, but they've gone a step further by removing all duties and restrictions on trade with Ukraine. And I think those, um, this, this granting of, of preferences again can also be very much as a positive tool to help Ukraine in the situation. What's the possible solutions for countries suffering? Is there actually enough food globally or is it more of an issue with pricing? Uh, Laura, what are your thoughts? It does largely remain a crisis of affordability and economic access. There is scope for substitution in food value chains to switch from one grain to another, use flour from another grain, for example. But the, the most vulnerable import-dependent countries are also countries that have historically, you know, certainly in the past five, ten years or so, relied increasingly on grain from Ukraine and Russia. So it's not just that they are dependent on imports, it's that they've been dependent on Ukrainian and Russian imports. And that puts them in a very difficult situation because they are now having to turn to international markets where prices are extremely high and try and source wheat that is approaching the same affordability as has been wheat from Ukraine and Russia. Ukrainian wheat has tended to be cheaper than than wheat from, say, Canada, for example. Um, so at the moment, it, I think the, there's talk of there being an increasing availability crisis. That's because we're coming into harvest season um, in Ukraine where we will really feel the lack of exports from Ukraine. But more importantly, it's about um, you know, the outlook for the medium term in terms of the ability of other producing regions to ramp up production the likely impacts of La Nina effects on, on harvest in other regions, for example. But right now, I think it, it is still one of affordability. In terms of what can be done, I mean, I think there's talk, and, and Marianne will know better than me on this, but I think there's talk of mechanisms to finance imports in those vulnerable countries, to, to leverage funds, to support the capacity of, of governments to import at much higher prices, um, domestically, you know, it's about as far as possible using social safety nets to try and protect the most vulnerable households, direct cash transfers, for example. But Marianne, I don't know if do you want to say anything about the the kind of uh, import financing side. The one key step that I'm aware of is that the G7 leaders, when they just met in June, essentially agreed on um, a global food security alliance. And I think they offered an additional 4.5 million. But at the same time, that's a positive step. 
it's way short of the UN Food World Program target. And I think, you know, faced with the worst hunger crisis in a generation, the G7 have ultimately failed to take really crucial action that's needed. So I would say there are movements, but still it's very, very small and slow steps. Is, is it clear what could make people actually take these steps more quickly? I think it's fairly clear the scale of risk that we face in terms of you know, what could change. I mean, it, it's really difficult to see how much more information and evidence and warning is needed for global actors to step up and commit the funds that we need to you know, tackle the acute crisis, never mind the long-term impacts of this situation. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. Marianne? Well, I think one of the key challenges is that we have these cascading effects. So, you know, you have energy prices are also spiking. That then triggers further fertilizer price increases. And that, because you know, fertilizer production is higher energy intensive, has knock-on effects and contributes further to the food price crisis. So I think um, we are in a situation where you can't just tackle, you know, one element of the crisis. It really has to be a much more holistic approach. And that's currently what we're not seeing. I think it's very much still treated as, um, you know, separate crises rather than actually looking at those knock-on effects and spillover effects. How effective has Russian propaganda been in all of this, in terms of covering their back within their role in the cost of living crisis globally? I think that it's just not easy for countries who are so dependent on Russia. Largely, you know, countries will usually be dependent or very often be dependent not only for agricultural commodity um, flows, but for energy flows as well and fertilizer supply. So it's it's an extremely difficult situation for governments who aren't in a strong kind of negotiating position to publicly denounce Russia, cut ties, because where do they go next? How easy will it be to, to strike up trade with other partners? Um, and you know the the crisis is such the kind of the cost of living crisis is such and the impacts of of this conflict are such that it's a it's a dangerous game that that countries will need to play if if they are to put their head above the parapet and say we won't trade with you anymore you know you need to you need to do something about this you're the cause of this situation because clearly for them the consequences of that are going to be severe and long term Marianne? I do think that disinformation and, and propaganda has played a role in this. But I think the other key element that we haven't really talked about yet is how Russia has also weaponized its gas and oil exports. It's demanding payment in rubles, for example. It's also stopping or reducing the flows of oil and gas to key EU member states. And I think that certainly has some important implications, particularly you know, for Germany's calculations in, in how to respond to that as the EU's largest economy. There's been massive steps taken and reducing the imports of oil and gas from Russia. But I think, again, there is a larger question to what extent um, that is sustainable because you know, you're really trying to, on the one hand, maximize pressure on Russia, but minimizing collateral damage to the West. And to some extent, Russia is very much benefiting from rising global oil and gas prices. And, you know, how do you balance that is one of the key considerations that, again, came up at the G7 summit, where there are discussions around introducing sort of price cap 
um, so that you know essentially you still secure supply of energy, but avoid that Russia benefits from those high energy prices. Do we know if Russia is suffering a similar cost of living crisis? My sense is that the sanctions are effective and do have a measurable economic impact. But the, qu- the question again is to what extent that changes the mind and the calculations of, of, of Russians. And there, I don't really have you know, the, the insights. But I think to your other point, Ned, about you know, the kind of more global and long-term effects of this, I think there is this broader question of what does all of this mean for the future of globalization? And I think that in and by itself, Russia's invasion of Ukraine doesn't necessarily represent an inflection point, but it, because it is part of a storm of crises on top of you know, US-China strategic competition and on top of still COVID-19 pandemic economic recovery, we are really, um, I think, seeing fundamental shifts. And I think those are in particular related to the future of supply chain reconfiguration. We're seeing very much a rethinking of supply chains away from kind of efficiency to much greater resilience, talk about French showing, working much more closely with allies. There is, I think, increasingly this linkage between trade and geopolitics and national security. And I think also very much a shift from globalization to regionalization. And we could perhaps see the emergence of blocks. On the one hand, you have you know, a block around the advanced economic democracies, the G7 plus, if you will. And on the other hand, you have a China-dominated bloc that includes Russia. And I'm not saying that those blocks are going to be totally solid, but I do think that there is increasing pressure to kind of fragment into these blocks. And, you know, on the one hand, you could also see that there is increasing trade amongst members of a bloc, but essentially that replaces then trade between those different blocks. So that could be one scenario for the future of globalization and the long-term implications of this war. Laura, is there any optimism to be found? Like, What is the long-term outlook we're looking at? No reasons to be optimistic, sadly. I haven't found one yet. Um, yeah, it's not just about high prices and, and continued economic insecurity. There will be significant impacts on harvests in seasons to come owing to the difficulty in accessing fertilizer and energy um you know key inputs by farmers um you know even just looking at ukraine to what extent can we really expect uh farming communities to return to ukraine and return to farming if they've had no revenue if they've had to flee the crisis you know if their infrastructure and homes are damaged or destroyed their land is damaged what prospects are there for a return to agriculture in the medium term um, but in you know in for low-income farmers around the world this could spell disaster and could prompt a shift away from farming um, but it also is just another pressure in addition to already high food prices, already high fertilizer prices and energy prices that were there before this crisis and that will be worsened by climate impacts um, moving forward. So, yeah, there's a whole lot of pressures that will worsen the global food security and nutrition security situation and it's difficult to see any factors um, that can improve it unless 
there's a real commitment, as Marianne said, to investing in resilience. Um, and for me, the you know one of the key factors there is recognizing the importance of building environmental resilience into our food systems. So not recovering from this crisis by ramping up, um, you know, input input heavy production, but using it as an opportunity to shift to more um, nature friendly farming, you know, reducing our reliance on fertilizers, on fossil fuels in food production. Um, those are things that could help to build our resilience to shocks in the future. But yes, yeah, certainly I think the outlook in terms of global nutrition is dismal. As the war goes on, I do think it's more important than ever not to lose concentration, focus, and not look away from the most impactful consequences of the war. I usually end with something pithy or proactive to say, but I'm afraid for once I'm slightly lost for words. I suppose don't start panic buying and donate to food banks if you can. Thanks for listening to this episode of Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. And thank you to Laura Wellesley and Marianne Petzinger. If you want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, head to Chatham House's website, chathamhouse.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue and on what aspects you want us to cover next. You can find us on all social media at Chatham House. I've been your host, Ned Sedgwick. The producer is David Dargahi from Earshot Strategies. And thanks also to Nick Cabling at Chatham House.